Welcome to the Australian Naval History video and podcast series. It is a production of the Very Active Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra, in partnership with the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, the Submarine Institute of Australia and the Sea Power Centre Australia. I'm Greg Swindon, a former naval officer and a naval historian from the Sea Power Centre Australia. This is the second of three episodes on the RAN in Papua New Guinea. This episode will focus on the establishment of the maritime element of the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, the PNGDF. Joining me today are Commodore Sand Bateman, who was CEO of HMAS Itapi, the first PNG-based attack class patrol boat, and later the RAN member of the Joint Planning Staff in Port Moresby, and the first director of the maritime operations in the PNGDF. A very busy time. Also, Mr Jim Knuckles, Australian Defence Representative in Port Moresby, in the period leading up to the self-government, in independence. And welcome back to Commander Viv Littlewood, who was the exo at HMAS Tarangau during 1973-74. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for coming to see us again. Um, Jim, I'll lead off with you. Uh, can you describe the political and the strategic background uh, informing the PNGDF and HQP and GDF uh, in the early 1970s? Yes, uh, I, I allude back to the, the previous episode where, where Tristan has given a, an overview of the, the historic geostrategic significance of PNG to um, Australia. And for well over 150 years, we saw PNG as this dark, foreboding, sunset bird hanging over Australia with a, a beak that almost touched our shores. And that really uh, was fed on by our own concerns about Asia and the fear of Asia. Mm. Uh, the Second World War brought that directly home to us. And following that, with the end of the war, of course, Australia stood back. But then, of course, the emergence of the winds of change in Southeast Asia, the end of colonial rule, uh, confrontation, um, uh, the whole uh, area of the Malaysian uh, insurgency, and then the Indonesian occupation, or sorry, acquisition of West Papua as a result of um, UN decisions. Australia recognised that th there was a threat there of great significance. And the two ways to respond to that were firstly to build a, a capability in PNG, a military army on the ground capability, uh, able to deter and possibly in the first stages slow down any foreign incursion because we now had a actual land border with a potential enemy at that stage, Sukarno's Indonesia. Uh, the second leg of this was to maintain a, the significance of maritime patrol capability in the region with the retention uh, of, a, of a, a naval base in Manus and particularly a refueling capability. That was the environment which we saw deciding, in fact, the way in which the Papua New Guinea defence capabilities were developed from the mid-60s on until the early 70s. However, with uh, the changes in government in Indonesia, Suharto government, uh, an accord signed with them, stabilisation of what was seen then as an expansion of uh, communism, uh, the Vietnam War, to a degree, saw Australian perspective changing as to the necessity of a strong land force capability in PNG. This also coincided with a decision in Canberra to begin to review 
what the future of PNG might hold, not just from the point of view of independence, where the Department of Territories had begun planning for some form of self-government by 1975. The second element of this was what is actually happening in New Guinea, and this is where, in a sense, my being initially posted to PNG uh, focused because it was recognised that Australia did not have a strong understanding of the domestic environment in PNG. Two sources of, for want of a better word, intelligence coming into the country, to Australia that is, were from the PNG administration, basically the KIAP system through the Department of the Administrator reporting on domestic involvement, Mount Turu cults, things like this, and uh, uh, to which we had posted from Australia a, a ASIS representative, an ASIO representative, and the JIB then becoming JIO representative, providing some different sorts of feeds. The second main source of intelligence as such came from the, the army presence. So we had these very diffuse sources of information and it was decided that Australia needed to review the domestic situation in PNG. So late 60s to early 70s, the, the, a, a review was, was undertaken and it was recognised Australia didn't really understand what was happening in PNG and had no capacity to judge what a future PNG might look like from a domestic security point of view. So it was recognised that there was a need for more information on that and I was initially posted to the Department of the Administrator to try and bring a focus uh, of, of that sort of development back to Canberra as a, as a line of reporting to enhance what was then emerging as a strategic um, and international policy capability in a reforming defence department. Remember at the same time we still had separate departments of Army, Navy and Air Force and they were going their own way and one of the reasons for the defence reform was to try and bring all of this yeah. together. So by the early 70s we see uh, an aggregation of these various factors coming together in PNG. Fundamental to that intelligence review I mentioned was a recognition uh, from a strategic policy point of view and from a defence white paper point of view that PNG no longer formed, uh, well, no longer PNG no longer existed as a shield or a forward operating base for Australian military personnel. The biggest concern became for Australia the stability of a newly emerging country on our borders and what we could do. Now that challenge then raised questions for the way we were doing things. It saw a slowdown of the commitment to expand the PNG military land capability in particular as a result of those earlier strategic environmental views about threats from the region. Mm -hmm. and, and it led to a question of what do we do domestically and can the, the PIRs, it then was, have a role in this. The challenge to that was the PIR training regime and the whole recruitment process and its general focus was on a, a, a land-based operational infantry capability. The, the Army, or the PNG Command, had refused to involve the PNGDF in any joint training with the police in, in uh, domestic security situations, aid to the civil power, and basically the, the Army view was there are too many legal and technical issues, we, we don't train, we have nothing to do with them. So we have in Moresby in the early 70s an administration switching quickly to a, an independence mode, particularly with the emergence of the 
the Labour government and Gough Whitlam's commitments. We have an army regime which understands that something's happening but has no clear understanding of which way to go except to continue maintaining its operational capability. We have a naval capability which the significance of Manus as a forward maritime operating base has reduced enormously in significance and the most people can think of is well PNG will need some sort of maritime patrol capability hence the commitment of the attack class patrol boats. So we see by 1972 a whole new situation emerging and trying to shape this against an emerging political environment in Port Moresby where PNG politicians were not fully aware of the true significance and the implications for um, uh, a, a new country and in particular defence capability. The administration and the training it had given to politicians was focused on developing a nation. There'd been little or no access or contact with the army which were the main policy operators in PNG. Navy was somewhat remote from all of this and remained so for quite a long time until the final commitment for planning when, when my colleague here, <laughs> Sam, finally became involved in trying to bring something forward in a, in a joint planning environment. So we've got all this coming together at a time when all of a sudden Labor says, bang, we're putting the foot on the accelerator, wham, it's going to happen. And all of a sudden the challenges became manifest. And one of those challenges was, do you keep a defence force of the size and shape that basically has two battalions, ancillary support now, a, a plugged-in air capability, a plugged-in maritime capability, or do you look at some of the colonial models? Now, during the period I was in Moresby, I spent some time visiting places like the then still British Solomon Islands Protectorate to see what was happening in those Pacific Islands about the future. And I came back asking the question, well, was there some merit in reducing the size and cost of a PNGDF component because the demands on the budget would be quite massive? Mm. And was there room for something like a field force or a, an equivalent uh, enhanced police capability? By the way, in all this historic time, the Defence Force had been continuing to acquire significant and quite sophisticated facilities, lovely new barracks and things like that. It amazed me when I arrived how elegant Murray Barracks was in comparison with many defence facilities in Australia. And we had the police chugging along on a separate pay scale and separate capabilities and separate support. So it was at this time that the Labor government, the new Labor government, began to focus on that. And in particular, Bill Morrison, who was the, the then Minister of Territories, started raising the questions of a field force. And according to Morrison in his memoirs, and I think this is basically true, he gained the approval of key ministers, including Chairman Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time, to create an expanded police capability as a field force and reduce the size of the PNGDF. That, however, did not happen for a variety of reasons, not least the reorganisation of defence and other commitments. This idea faded. Many people say it never had a, a hope of occurring. But be that as it may, that thought occurred. After that thought bubble, we saw ourselves marching forward to develop a capability that reflected what had really been developed from the mid-60s on, and that was the PNGDF, in a sense, structure that we see today. The problems being excessive costs to the government mm -hmm. and massive challenges for what you do with a force that has, in a sense, 
little or no role in a newly emerging country because it sees itself as defending the borders and not assisting in what I'll call national development in that sense. So we, we see a situation as a background to you, really a, a long background, I'm sorry to say to your question, as situating where we are in terms of developing a new Papua New Guinea defence organisation. Politically, the politicians were not very much aware of that. By the 72, uh, Australia had formally posted to the PNG government uh, a, an advisor, a chap called Nick Webb, who'd come from the Strategic and International Policy Division, to assist them in formulating what sort of defence structure there would be. But the influence of uh, Brigadier Jim Norrie, who was then commander of what was then the Joint Force, very close to Samaria, the Prime Minister, was, you need this model, this is where we should go, this is what we need to have. And so we then created joint planning groups, um, which Sam was involved in, to try and shape what this force would be. But at the end of the day, a large and expensive force to sell to PNG an independence and an independent capabilities, Australia committed to a, a status of forces agreement, which would allow us to keep our personnel in PNG, but not be subject to mm -hmm. local court procedures. A defence cooperation agreement, which basically meant a, a hidden, well, a, a not necessarily public subvention to the continued support of a defence organisation that could not possibly operate under the PNG budget without external Australian support. So we, we march then forward with an independent force and a capability, which to this day is a real challenge to the PNG government to support. Just a slight aside, can you recall uh, how long the previous idea of self-government would have existed before full independence it prior to the change in the Australian? It began emerging in the late, um, late 60s, and I think someone alluded earlier in, in the previous episode to UN missions. So the UN began to raise the question of the future of, of PNG, and the Australian government began to recognise that with the fall, so to speak, of colonial power around us, the end of the Dutch East Indies Empire, mm. which had been part of our strategic planning equation for so long, that the writing was on the wall, the winds of change were occurring. And so, as I say, by the late 60s, the Department of Territory was actually um, looking at this concept of, of, of self-government, at least, by 1975. So a lot of work was happening and the, you know, when I arrived in Moresby, there were large numbers of individuals and groups working on what sort of constitution would, would happen. Do you have an autochthonous constitution which comes from the people? Do you have an, emo uh, an imposed constitution which comes from the top? What would the role of the defence force be? All of these things were beginning to emerge but it was to be a slow process, 72 to 75. All of a sudden, the Whitlam government arrives and said, you know, sorry, off we go. And so within a year in that 72, 73 period, all of this stuff had to be hammered into concrete in order for the formal negotiations, the handover of defence powers, for which I ultimately became involved when I went back to Canberra in helping negotiate, uh, all of this fell in as part of the overall package that Australia presented to PNG, which, by the way, included an administrative structure, because, frankly, no one had time to think of anything else, to model what had already been there 
and what was in Australia. So they have to have a Department of Works and they have to have a Department of Health and they have to have a Department of Education, Department of Social Security. We created this replication of Australian administrative processes and systems in a country that was not capable of delivering at that stage because we had been remiss in training and preparing people. So Noel Levy, the first Secretary of Defence, came into this head of a, of a significant public service department in a, you know, jointly with the, the, the chief of the force uh, without a strong background in either administration or more particularly in knowledge of the defence requirements and needs of defence. Now in all of this, it wasn't as if everyone in Papua New Guinea said this is a wonderful picture. There were officers in the PNG DF, uh, as it then had become, uh, who felt that this force was too big and too difficult and should be scaled back. There were others in general areas of administration who were worried about the capacity of PNG to indigenise sufficiently quickly many positions of government. So it, it's the defence picture is part of the more complex picture of Australia's handling, first time ever, a decolonisation. Yep. Thanks. Uh, Sam, uh, you were heavily involved in PNG during this period. Uh, what was Australia doing to get the, the maritime element, you know, previously the, just the five patrol boats and a couple of landing craft, what were they doing to get those ready and transfer across to the PNGDF? Well, quite frankly, Greg, an awful lot going on. But I, I suppose a, a little bit of personal background here would be that uh, towards the end of 1971, I was XO of HMAS Parramatta, and out of the blue one day, I received a phone call from uh, Officer Posting saying, was I prepared to go back to Papua New Guinea? And having had a previous posting up there in the 1960s, and I said I was. So almost quite a crash posting at a, a, literally about six weeks' notice. I found myself in Port Moresby just before Christmas 1971 with the family, posted initially as uh, Noik Port Moresby, uh, at an office down in the oil fuel installation which existed down the waterfront in Port Moresby. There was another REN officer in Port Moresby at the time, a Lieutenant McAllister, who effectively was serving as the recruiting officer for the PNG division. Uh, malice of forethought, because I, I didn't really appreciate at the time that all these exciting, dramatic things were going to start happening in PNG over the next couple of years. And as we've heard, I mean, uh, in February 1972, literally a few weeks after I arrived, uh, the Joint Force PNG was created. I was then uh, reposted as a naval member of the Joint Planning Staff, uh, which is a team at Murray Barracks comprising an Army Colonel as the Chief Planning Officer and a uh, major equivalent, Lieutenant Commander equivalent from each of the three services. At that stage, uh, Noik PNG was still in Marnus, at Commander Bill Bird at the time. Uh, I think my posting as Noik Port Moresby lapsed, so I was just in the Naval Member of the Joint Planning Staff. In June 1972, Captain Lancaster arrived uh, to be the Naval Component Commander, and of course, with the establishment of the Joint Force PNG, the, 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 the Joint Force had the three components, an air, land component, air component, naval component. Initially, Bill Bird had been the Naval Component Commander, but he, when Captain Lancaster arrived in June 72, he reverted back to being just CO Tarangar. Uh, 
things moved very quickly through 1972 to the uh, establishment of the uh, PNG Defence Force in February 1973. And at that stage, uh, John Lancaster became Chief of Operations of the PNG Defence Force and I became the inaugural Director of Maritime Operations and uh, the PNG Defence Force. And that led me through to my three years posting in Port Moresby from December 71 through to December 74. So that was the period when all these things were happening in terms of the, the RAN losing its identity as a single service, the absorption of the uh, uh, Army, what had previously been the Army Landing Craft Squadron into Port Moresby into the maritime element. Uh, lots of complex issues, some of which Jim has alluded to, uh, lots of controversies, lots of infighting, uh, and uh, well, there's a few stories to be told there, but that's the, the background. With the, and of course, with the uh, patrol boats, the, the ceremony itself, it's government, when the uh, patrol boats and the army, la uh, the naval landing craft had already arrived up there at the time, pulled down the RAN white ensigns and uh, hoisted the PNG ensign in uh, at the time of self government. But I think at that stage, the the RAN didn't sort of walk away from you know, looking after the patrol boats or the landing craft. The the officers and the sailors, in many respects, just stayed and became members of the PNGDF. Is that correct? Yes. Well, from the seagoing side, there was a process of fairly rapid localization of the crews of the patrol boats, and uh, in uh, mid 1974, of course, we achieved our first. Uh, PNG patrol boat that was fully manned by PNG personnel under the command of then Lieutenant Carrie Frank. But uh, so that process of localization from 71 to 74, I mean, I suppose in 71, most of the patrol boats were probably half manned by RAN people, but then very quickly it came to a situation where it might only have been the, the CO, perhaps the XO, and perhaps the chief engineer. Uh, And of course, the, uh, with the formation of the PNG Defence Force, we also, the RN people started wearing these PNG Defence Force coloured patch on their left shirt, etc. Um, That's the uh, Bird of Paradise, bird I think, of paradise, on, on, yes, the, on yes, the green yeah, patch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, what happened at Tarangau? That was handed over to the PNG Well, I think Viv Littlewood's probably mm -hmm. the best person yeah, who was yeah, serving there at yeah. the time. So, what happened there, Viv? Yeah, it, it quite a steady change. Uh, one of the uh, early indications were that, you know, as far as the Navy's concerned, everybody on a base or in a ship is responsible to the captain. Uh, the Army run things differently. They have lodger units. And suddenly, there was an Army engineering unit arrived uh, to carry out some civil engineering. They were responsible for the chief engineer back in Port Moresby, which was a bit of a shock to, <laughs> to us when we hadn't been used to that sort of thing. Um, and gradually, the feeling came that um, it was change. One of the, and the impression, and I think Sam's already mentioned it, the impression was that the army were being a bit naughty because they were the biggest outfit. They thought that the cheapest and best way to run the PNGDF was do it army way. So they didn't realise that victualling a patrol boat on, at sea was a bit different from victualling a platoon out in the bush. 
uh, and I know John Lancaster tried to persuade them to uh, treat signals in a Navy way rather than just as correspondence, which the Army tends to do. But the biggest thing that came out was that the whole PNG Defence Force were going to wear jungle greens. I said in the previous thing that, uh, that it's a reflection on RAN personnel in how they uh, produced a loyalty to the Navy, to the local people. And this was just not on. Fortunately, we got the buzz that there was to be wasn't in the, um, you know, they didn't think of it, but it was a mutiny. They weren't going to turn two one day. Fortunately, the next day was payday, so they, did, they fronted up a pay, pay parade, and uh, I did the thing that we're all trained to do. I read the articles of war <laughs> and uh, persuaded them that that sort of thing was, was not on. But I think, and that message got back to Moresby, of course, uh, Peter Mackay, who was captain of Tarangawa, was at Moresby at the time, so I was acting CO. Um, but I think that resulted in the maritime element staying dressed as sailors, and they just put their the bird of paradise patch on their shoulders. Um, that was an indication, really, what was happening, and Sam has referred to it in Moresby where the, the army were not really understanding that the maritime element or the a new navy had to be run a, a little bit differently from, uh, from a couple of battalions of soldiers. Sam. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, Jim referred to some of these, the problems we were having in Port Moresby at the time. I have to say that the uh, commander of the PNG Defence Force, Brigadier Jim Norrie, was an extremely strong personality and he would brook absolutely no arguments that were looked like being single service arguments that the Navy or Air Force did things differently. And when Captain Lancaster or I would you know, raise some issues such as Bib's been alluding to, we just stump the table and say, we're going to do it one way, we're going to do it my way, sort of thing. And uh, that made, and this, again, this issue of, uh, I remember there was a study done of, of the uh, reorganisation of HMAS Tarangau to become the PNGDF patrol boat base. And the first study of that, which was basically done by army officers, had this multi-headed organisation where there's going to be barracks staff, there's going to be a military police pl platoon, all these subsidiary army organisations which are going to report back to their respective you know, heads of corps back in, uh, back in uh, Port Moresby. And it was also an unfortunate coincidence at the time the Vietnam War was ending. And the Australian Army, which I think at the height of the Vietnam War ran itself up to about 70,000 people, if I remember rightly, uh, was flushed with manpower. And there seemed to be a mission among the Army leaders in Fort Moresby to create as many jobs as possible for <laughs> Army personnel. And of course the Navy was such a small part of this. And we had this devil's own job of convincing people. I mean, again, Jim talked about the problems of a the land border with Indonesia, and of course the land border with Indonesia is a major strategic issue for Papua New Guinea, but there was very little appreciation, despite our strong arguments, that PNG, hey, PNG is also a big archipelagic country, a large EEZ, fish-rich waters, etc. It needs to be 
patrol. There's remote islands that need to have sondry patrols, etc. Uh, earlier, Sigma mentioned the Coast Watcher organisation. Uh, many of these small islands are quite remote, not visited by government, but the patrol boats, etc., serve a useful sondry protection role by visiting these remote atolls, some of which are uninhabited. There was very little appreciation of that in Murray Barracks at the time, despite the best efforts of Captain Mancoaster and myself to, prom to promote it largely because we were totally swamped by these army views led by this very, uh, to be frank, quite arrogant brigadier who was not going to have a bar of anything. And of course we were also not helped at the time by the fact that reorganisation of the defence organisation was going on in Canberra and uh, the Navy to some extent in Canberra was losing its single service voice which ended with the end of the Department of Navy and the Department of Defence taking over. And the Department of Defence organisation, I mean, put it in simple terms, was probably more receptive of what was coming out of Port Moresby mm. from Jim Norrie and others, rather than sort of listening to any single service views or complaints from the Navy. Yeah. Care to comment on that? I think yeah, you, I, I can I see I you're about to well leap I in there. No, no, only in the sense that, uh, you know, what Sam said is, uh, is correct. And I'm on the record of saying this to others uh, and, and in a published form that in some of my cables back to Canberra, to Defence Canberra, I suggested that the looming cost of a defence force of the shape and size, the, the nature that was being proposed, could be detrimental in PNG. And it might be relevant to undertake some studies of the potential capabilities of, of a field force, and a, a, a specifically trained component of the police to undertake this border patrol protection role. Uh, when word of that got back to Norrie, and I was not reporting through him, of course, I was reporting mm. directly to Canberra. Someone had clearly mentioned or given him a copy of my, my message. He called me into his office and said, you've got to stop this talk about a field force. And if you don't, I'll have you escorted to the airport and put on a plane and sent home. Now, that was a little bit of a braggadocio from his point of view. He would have found it difficult to do that. But it reflects the nature of the world at the time. And, and look, one can understand. We had three separate services in Australia. We had only ourselves come to a recognition that we had to create a joint defence organisation which better integrated the three services. And all of a sudden, we were trying to do this in a foreign country, remote from Canberra, we ourselves had little or no experience of what a joint defence force would look like. So the challenges of um, this integration and this creating a, a, a composite whole, nationally focused military capability for PNG was something we ourselves were only three quarters of the way mm. through. And so whilst we, we can be critical and look back, one needs to also understand that this was a challenge Australia was facing itself. Were we to be doing that now, that is to say helping create a new PNG capability, we would have been much better positioned and much mm -hmm. better prepared. The only other thing I would note was throughout all of this, Canberra's commitment to PNG was never in the form of a treaty commitment because Australia did not want to become involved in 
internecine struggles within a then foreign country. So that was taking us a step back quickly. But at the back of our minds, we saw internal security as a major problem. And we saw a capable military capacity as important in that regard, despite the fact that we not helped prepare this capability for anything other than defending its borders, either from a ground force point of view or a maritime point of view. And the air was only plugged in at the end of the day because, as been mentioned earlier, the air capability was just tasked out of Australia. At one stage, we had visions of trying to retain a, a major air cap forward air capability in PNG. But once Australia committed to building a major northern defence air base, the, the Tyndall approach, all of that changed enormously. But people in the system were still operating in the narrow focus of the world that they came from, foreshadowing a challenge that would occur in Australia in the future. And so there's this real set of issues here. And it's yep. not a simple uh, issue. It's, it's quite complicated. I mean, I think at the time it was clear to a lot of us that we we're building up a defence infrastructure. But there's no way in the world that an independent PNG Defence Force is going to manage that. I mean, with the headquarters of the PNG Defence Force and Murray Barracks, the various area headquarters around the country, the headquarters they wanted to establish over at Nombrum. And I think, I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but I think at the time, around this period in 1972, there was something like 700 ADF people serving in Papua New Guinea. And I, I mentioned that the build-up of people from the army side of things. There was also a build-up of people in Port Moresby from the naval side. And I mentioned when I arrived in December 71, there was just Lieutenant McAllister and myself. By the end of 1972, off the top of my head, I would say there was at least a dozen RAM people uh, in Port Moresby in various postings, personnel, logistics, operations areas of the headquarters of the PNG Defence Force. Additional postings for RAM people we hadn't had before. Of course, there was this transfer of command responsibility, which had previously been exercised over the patrol boats from in Tarangau, they had been transferred to uh, Murray Barracks. And, and of course, we were also taking over not just the patrol boats, but the, the Army Landing Craft Squadron as well. And that's another story we might go into later about mm. how the Army Landing Craft Squadron was absorbed into the maritime element. Yeah. Viv, we're hearing that uh, it was maybe too much too soon uh, to, to hand independence <coughs> across to, to PNG. And in fact, I think one of the uh, PNGD officers, uh, Colonel Reg uh, Renagi, said the same thing, uh, that you know, they weren't ready uh, for independence and the transition was not going to work. Can you care to comment on that? Yes. It, you know, once the political decision was made, we didn't have any choice. But talking to the local people, um, they were quite ready for self-government, but not independence. They were expecting self-government for about 10 years mm. and gradually working towards it and suddenly it was foisted upon them. They knew that they weren't ready. Um, Michael Samari brought his, just after self-government, Michael Samari brought his cabinet to Manus. We were quite impressed talking to them. And a he, he was a good leader? Uh, yes, he was. Yeah. Uh, well, the impression I had was. And his ministers were all genuinely interested in developing a worthwhile independent country. But talking to them, they even said 
we're not going to be ready next year for independence. Um, so, you know, Canberra just pushed the country too fast. Um, here was a defence force still struggling to, to work out what was required. But the whole country really wasn't, wasn't ready and wasn't going to be ready for, for a number of years. Jim, in response to that, was there any sort of thought in Australia um, under the Whitlam government at the time that maybe they were going too fast or it was a decision was made and we're pushing on? I think it was a clear political decision. It should be remembered that the Labor Party prior to the election, which brought them to power, publicly committed themselves to, to independence. In that early period, people like Bob Hawke, as a, then a trades union representative, was in PNG also looking at the creation of um, PNG trades unions and other things. There's some wonderful stories about Hawke and his time there, which uh, could be repeated later. Uh, but the point being that they were politically on that band, well, not the bandwagon, they were driving forward in what they saw was a more progressive view of the world, equal to their view on the Vietnam War. So we're moving forward. The concerns then in, in the administration of all this is how to do this uh, best as possible in the time frame because we, the government had set a time on it. Now, <laughs> this is at a time when we ourselves are just groping with the concept of really doing our own geostrategic assessments and developing our force capabilities initially on the basis of that perception of what our geostrategic environment is and then coming down to the capabilities necessary to operate in that environment. And the 72 white paper, which I ended up being a draftsman on, was the beginning of this changed perception in the way in which we in Australia shaped our capabilities. We, we did none of that for PNG. We simply said, those are the capabilities you've got. Those are the capabilities we'll continue to fund through the Defence Cooperation Program. And for a number of years as Assistant Secretary PNG in the Defence Department, I ran that program of subventing the PNG Defence Organisation. So th th what, what I'm trying to say is the force of circumstances was such that there was little room for anyone mm -hmm. to operate other than within those parameters. We were locked into independence. PNG and its people were understood that that was happening but had reticence about it. And if you look at the political situation, Somari was, uh, was Bangu Party, but the United Party, which were, consisted of significant votes in the Highlands and other areas, was almost totally against independence. And so you had this domestic environment in PNG itself which raised questions about what it all meant, not least the fear of the unknown. But we were going ahead regardless. In my own mind, it's unfortunate that we were not all able to stand back and assess the situation with a little bit more thought and time, both from the civil administration uh, of PNG, but equally and more importantly in terms of this discussion, the maritime. Uh, because we had yet to understand ourselves the significance of that strategic Pacific environment which only after 72 began to be clearly stated as a fundamental driver in developing our defence capabilities and requirements, and, and that endures to today. Mm. Before that, we'd seen things somewhat differently as static land conflicts, either in PNG, as a possible with incursions, or in Southeast Asia mm. on the ground. And that change from our perspective 
didn't help. It was only later when we undertook work on, the, as a result of the development of 200 nautical mile zones, and I led a, a delegation around the Pacific with Australian and New Zealand personnel to assess what their capabilities were in protecting their, their new uh, maritime zones, which were zilch, that we came up with the concept of the Pacific Patrol Boat as a way of providing a capability and reinforcing the capacity of those countries and at the same time injecting into the operation of those vessels some Australian naval personnel mm. to give them a, a broader perspective of the Pacific and to reinforce Australia's uh, recognition by the Pacific countries of Australia's geostrategic commitment to the region. But all of that came later. Mm. So again, uh, it's, it's almost force of circumstance, uh, you know. So Sam, PNG is going to get independence whether they want it, need it or like it. So how does the REN go about doing the whole transfer of, of the equipment, of the knowledge? Well, I think uh, Jim's largely said that. I think from a REN point of view, I think uh, we're committed to this political environment. I think uh, uh, thinking back to my own thoughts at the time, as 1972 moved on, uh, I mean, I had nothing else in mind other than the country was going to be have self-government independent within a few years, and the, and the mission was to achieve that as quickly as possible. I think Tarangau had a slightly different sort of attitude. I mentioned how the previous CEO of Tarangau had also been double-headed as not PNG. I think he was personally quite upset when that responsibility, he lost part of his, large part of his job in the operational control of the patrol boats, transferred to Port Moresby, uh, and he reverted just to being back to being a base commander where he'd previously been a, a genuine naval area commander. Uh, but from a Port Moresby point of view, I mean, Jim summed it up. I mean, I think we were committed to this political environment, move the country, uh, get things going to the joint force environment as quickly as possible, but also very conscious from a naval point of view of the strategic requirement, the strategic necessity for the country to have a, a realistic maritime surveillance and patrol law enforcement type force. And I just mentioned a couple of little issues there. Uh, Jim mentioned uh, Mr Nick Webb, who was the Australian Defence representative in, uh, within the, the PNG Defence Organisation, uh, the PNG Department of Defence. Nick played around with the idea of a Coast Guard rather than the maritime element of the uh, PNG Defence Force. Because Nick was having all these battles of his own at the policy level and was conscious that there was a real risk and, and foresaw indeed that the, the naval side of things, the maritime element side of things was going to be totally swamped by the khaki side of things. And he, he thought of the uh, Coast Guard as perhaps being a uh, police Coast Guard type force, part of the uh, field force that Jim's been mentioning about, uh, but, but something which would focus on you know, the, the maritime requirements of the country not being part of this uh, very large uh, army side of things. Another thing that we haven't mentioned so far is that uh, Tarangau is very remote and very difficult to resupply and uh, clearly the PNG Defence Force was going to have a lot of trouble maintaining this very remote base, the most remote base of any of its bases. And uh, that joint planning staff that I was part of uh, with the, the colonel in charge, we 
investigate the possibilities. And I think we even secured some land in Madang for establish the main maritime element base to be in Madang rather than in Manus. And of course, uh, unfortunately, because of money and things like that, it, it never actually happened. Incidentally, uh, that land I think we acquired or penciled in is now the site of the uh, main National Maritime College, which is where all the engineers and technical people for the maritime element are actually trained through that uh, maritime college in, uh, in Madang. But I think also at one point there was a base opened in Port Moresby, Basilisk. Was that, that was still an Australian base though? No. Uh, to, I think the, the ship's name story there is that I mentioned the build-up of RAN people in Port Moresby. And we became, I mean, when I initially arrived in Port Moresby, my pay docs and personnel aside looked after from Tarangau. The people in Port Moresby during 1972 became self-supporting and for a ship's name ah, okay. was HMAS There were no ships physically located? No, no. And Maybe incidentally, uh, uh, the PNG Defence Force only recently has gone back to ship's names for its bases. Yeah. And Tarangau is now PNGS Tarangau rather than the PNGDF patrol boat base. And the Army Landing, what well, was the Army Landing Craft Squadron, now the PNGDF Landing Craft Squadron of Fort Moresby is actually PNGS Basilisk. Sorry, Viv. Um, just going on about Jim and the police force. I was in, involved with um, uh, officer training for the future. I went across to Lay and we had a working party trying to produce a, a curriculum and syllabus for uh, the officer training in the new Joint uh, Services College. The police were to be part of that. And uh, after a while, the police said, we, we're not part of this, or we just couldn't fit in with the uh, philosophy of, of the army, really, and pull out, which is interesting. Uh, I got into a little bit of of flack from Port Moresby over this because I was given the brief of um, creating a, an officer training structure um, to match the, the budget. Now we'd sent our officers down to uh, Australia up until that, that stage and they went to Cerberus and they went to Watson and uh, went to sea in RAN ships. Uh, I had to try and come up with something that could be afforded, um, and the difficult part was finding uh, a way of sea time for these midshipmen, uh, and there was going to be a need for a glorified work boats, you know, with navigation equipment and things like that. So um, that went down like a lead balloon, understandably, because it wasn't going to be wasn't going to produce officers of the of the right stature. But that was the sort of problems that Jim was talking about, you know, and, and Sam. Uh, a PNG Defence Force, which the future PNG really couldn't afford. Mm -hmm. yeah. Look, I, I think in all of this, I, I stand back and I think, my God, despite all of this, those people at the operating level made this happen. Despite this, different cultures, uh, you know, political pressure, short fuse decision making 
the service personnel involved in these programs made it happen. And we left a highly effective force in PNG. Remember a force that was able to, to uh, go on and undertake uh, a, a, an overseas deployment, albeit with Australian support, in support of a, an, a, an internal insurgency, actually, in a neighbouring country. So the, the capabilities and the capacities were there. But as the years went by, the truth of the problem began to emerge. I would continue to go to Moresby for defence cooperation discussions, talk to successive uh, secretaries of defence about their budgetary problems, their inability to pay, their inability to support the fuel and maintenance for the attack class patrol boats, the difficulty of the cost of maintaining aircraft, and then the problem of supporting deployed operational units um, against a set budget. Mm. And so it, there's been this slow attrition of PNG capabilities, but I think it's a credit to the Australian servicemen involved that they were able to walk away from this and feel that despite the problems, they left something that worked, that something was, that was viable, and that something that actually, for a, a significant period of time, became an important core of the, the national identity of PNG. And that was reflected at the Hewitt Murray Stadium with the taking down of the Australian flag and the raising of the PNG flag and the, the military presence there, which was seen by the populace as a reflection that they were a country there were a substance there, and, and that was very, very important at the time. Sam, so what do we hand over to, to PNG is in the way of hardware, and what's changed? Has there been a lasting impression there? Well, we handed over in terms of hardware. It was the five attack class patrol boats, which were the PNG patrol boat squadron, and the two LCHs, Buna and Samamoa, uh, which became... PNG ships and are still operational. The tech class patrol boats, of course, gone and been replaced by the Pacific patrol boats. Uh, Tarangau is still there, PNGS Tarangau, the patrol boat base, although it's been totally emasculated over the last few years with the establishment of the refugee centre there. I visited uh, Manus last year and, and was surprised just, I mean, that refugee centre has been built totally within the base. and. Now, with the closing of the refugee centre, we have this problem. I mean, the base commander there was terribly apprehensive. What, uh, you're going to close the refugee centre. What am I going to do with all these buildings and infrastructure and stuff? I can't maintain that. I can't keep it going. What, what's the Australian government's plan for, getting, for, you know, for decommissioning it all? And I don't think, I mean, as far as I know, there's been no plans for decommissioning. So we've settled the PNG Defence Force with its huge liability at the patrol boat base at Lombrum. Uh, the landing craft squadron uh, is still there on the waterfront in Port Moresby, but it's now being encroached upon by uh, land reclamation works, uh, container terminals, <coughs> and, there are, and the Defence Force has been told to move out of the landing craft squadron. And who uh, have been offered a new site uh, further down the coast, which is a site which requires massive dredging, earthworks, etc., to build a base there, and the whole thing now is on hold. So the landing craft squadron bases, which, I mean, it's there now, but it's under this uh, threat of removal. Uh, 
At the time of self-government, uh, whilst the plans were there for the LCHs to, two LCHs to become part of the PNG Defence Force, the Army still had some of its LCM8s there. Uh, and the, uh, as well as initially when the uh, joint, or when the PNG Defence Force was established in 1973 and the Army Landing Craft Squadron came in to being part of the maritime element, it then consisted of a very old landing craft, an ALC-50, which was virtually past the point of any worthwhile repair. And I think there were three LCM-8s and a, a vessel called, a, a converted fishing boat called the Taruki. Uh, the Taruki, the LCM-8s have no self-contained navigational equipment at all. So when the LCM-8s, the Army used to operate on this uh, fashion of, uh, if the LCM-8s deployed away from Port Moresby, the Taruki would go along as a mothership. Uh, provide you know, navigational support, etc. Uh, unfortunately, not long after the PNG Defence Force was established and this army organisation had come under the maritime element, the Taruki was wrecked on the south coast of uh, Papua. And uh, it was a very messy situation. Uh, initially, due to some finger trouble between the, patrol, between the base and the waterfront and the headquarters, we didn't know for a couple of days at headquarters level that the Taruki was in fact was missing. We conducted an air search then down, we knew it had gone past Samurai, let's say this was now Wednesday, we knew it had gone past Samurai on the Sunday. Air search down the coast, there's the Taruki lying on its beam ends on the edge of a reef, no sign of any life. So what happened to the crew? So we had to do an air search into the Gulf of Papua and eventually the, the crew were found on the life raft. Fortunately, just towards the end of the day, uh, when we could be picked them up next morning. But it was an unfortunate uh, story, if you like, mm. an unfortunate beginning to the Army. And there was a lot of ill will, I have to say, within the Army landing stuff from you know, becoming part of the, the Navy, uh, or part, well, what they saw as part of the Navy, really part of the joint maritime element. Uh, the Army, Australian Army, withdrew the LCMates from Port Moresby and of course the LCH has arrived and uh, that's the organisation that's still there. There's actually now three, uh, we've given them another, with the paying off of the LCHs in Australia, a third LCH decommissioned RAN vessel has been passed to the PNG Defence Force, so actually now got three LCHs up there. So with the Pacific patrol boats that Australia has provided and the three LCHs, Australia really hasn't let go of the the PNGDF, the maritime element. Oh, not so. at all, but uh, I've recently had some visits to, to PNG and I'm afraid uh, the uh, maritime element is still very much the poor cousin of the land element. Uh, there's arrangements in place at present to increase the size of the PNG Defence Force, the manpower of the PNG Defence Force, by establishing a third battalion of the PIR. I mean, this is an incredible decision because uh, the patrol boats at present uh, don't do any surveillance at all in PNG waters unless it's paid for by the National Fisheries Authority. There are no sovereignty patrols, etc. Uh, there's no appreciation, seems to be no appreciation within Murray Barracks of the fact that you know the country is a large archipelagic country with you know, fish-rich resources need to be protected, etc. Uh, to their credit, though, the, the four Pacific patrol boats, the, P, the 
PNG Defence Force has at present, uh, they seem to have cannibalised two to allow two to be operational. And those two operational are doing good things. In fact, last uh, in 2016, they embarked on a deployment. They went from PNG across to the waters of Sumatra to undertake an exercise with the uh, Indonesian Navy. And that was conducted well at the uh, last uh, Kakadu exercise, I think in 2016. Uh, a PNG patrol boat was awarded the award, I think, of being the, the most efficient patrol boat in that particular exercise. So, and when I went on board these patrol boats, the two that are fully operational, I mean, you can feel on board a ship if it's well run, well operated. I had a total feeling that these two ships were working well, but they're, they're working well within the constraints of the tight budgets, etc., from Murray Barracks and the fact that they're doing operationally they seem to be doing more naval type things, exercising with other Pacific patrol boats, uh, all, all this of course was funded by Australia, rather than doing actual national tasks in their own waters which, for which they require national funding for. Yeah. Do you have any last thoughts on PNG and the independence issue? Um, no, just going back to uh, uh, that handover period, where you know, life in Tarangau for, the, for Australians was very pleasant. Um, Banyans and John Stacey had built this magnificent oval and that sort of thing. So we left Tarangau in very good shape. Um, and it's just a pity that the finances weren't there to keep it as it was in 1972-73. Jim, any last thoughts? Only to say that we in Australia hopefully will learn lessons from what happened in PNG, not only in terms of our future relationship with PNG, but also to the strategically important countries in, in the Southwest Pacific. And it's a challenge for us in our strategic assessments, force capability developments, to recognise where we sit and what our role is in that regard. And in, separately from the point of view of PNG, I've always hoped that we might be able to encourage them themselves to review their geostrategic environment to better base an assessment on their defence capabilities, which at the moment still seem to be driven by the need for ground force capabilities, whereas some would suggest that greater emphasis, and Sam's comments about the modest capability they have, greater emphasis on maritime patrol for countries that have rich mm. archipelagic fishing zones and the like. It seems to me important to the long-term economic future of PNG that a, a greater investment is made in that area. Repercharge there, Sam? Yes, <laughs> quick one. I mean, just following on from Jim's point there. Uh, Unfortunately, I think within the, the RAN, and the priority, of course, is still understandable war fighting type capabilities. And I don't think support, whilst we provide support for the PNGDF maritime as much as we can in terms of training and, of course, the equipment, uh, etc., I still don't think we give sufficient priority to the sort of issues that uh, Jim's been talking about. Uh, but I'd just also mention an anecdote here to fin finish with, that uh, in 1974 there was a royal tour to Papua New Guinea, Queen, Prince Philip, the whole box and dice, including Lord Louis Mountbatten. 
And the Queen and her party departed ahead of Lord Louis, and we had Lord Louis in Port Moresby for a couple of extra days, and I found myself in the position of having to squire him round and take him up to buy a river, bird sanctuary, look after him, etc. When he was departing, it was a Queen's flight aircraft at Jackson's Airport, and Michael Samari, who of course then was Chief Minister of PNG, was out there to farewell him. And uh, Lord Louis says to Michael Samari, just as he's about to come aboard the aircraft, come with me, Mr. Samari, we'll have a little walk up the tarmac together. And off they toddle. And I thought it's my job to follow, follow along behind. And the conversation ran along the lines of, now, oh, Mr. Samari, says Lord Louis, you know I've had some experience in taking countries through to independence. And I just think give you a few words of advice. And the key word of advice is don't forget your previous colonial masters. They've been trying their best to do things for you. Don't you ever forget that, Mr. Samari. Mr. Samari nodded, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir, <laughs> yes, sir. Lord Louis got on the aircraft. Thanks for that. <laughs> Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Uh, my thanks to Sam, Jim and uh, Viv for joining us. Uh, and thank you and thank you for their insights. And thank you for joining us as well. Uh, that's all we have. Bye for now.